welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. So good morning, everybody. Is it still morning? Uh, it's great to be here. Uh, this is the fifth time that Lisa and I have had the privilege of being with you. Uh, yeah, amen. Thank you. Thank you. And it's worth it just to watch you play the keyboard. I thought, wonderful. But, uh, <laughs> but thank you for your warm welcome. We are going, Lisa and I are going off to the East Coast in May and June. And I don't know what the future holds in terms of us uh, coming back. But uh, it's been really good. I just want to thank you. Uh, when Greg Ogden called me the first time, I was having my devotions literally in the book of John. And I thought, oh, well, we'll just go into John. So that's why we're still in John, and I, do, I have read other books of the Bible other than John, but uh, we've, we've had a good, I've had a good time in John. I'm not too worried about you having a good time, but no, I really am. I'm sorry, but um, we're going to be in John 19 in just a moment, but today is what day? Palm Sunday, and then next Sunday is what day? Easter Sunday, and you're going to come at 8 o'clock, right, because you love Jesus, you know, and uh, I don't know if there's any more confusing holiday to the world out there than, than Easter. The, the world doesn't know about palm branches and stuff, but what is Easter? Easter's got to be a day when the chocolate bunny that you buy at CVS lays the eggs that you buy at Vons because the bunny was raised from the dead or something like that. I mean, it's just, it's got to be really confusing. And in a way, if we're honest, we'd say even in the Bible, it's kind of confusing, Right? And we just sang these songs, Hosanna, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago in John 12, even the king of Israel. Okay, test question. You high schoolers should not have sat near the front. I warned you before. Uh, what is, what happens on Easter? Resurrection. What's the one, here's the test question. What's the one requirement absolutely necessary to be raised from the dead. You got to be dead. Yeah, you have to die. Good. We got, we got a free barbecue for you afterwards. <laughs> I don't know if it's free. If I, if I spoke out of turn, my wife will pay for your barbecue. But um, yeah. So how do we go from Palm Sunday to Resurrection Sunday? How does that work? You know, this week is so important that the church historically has given names to every day of the week. See, if we, see how you can do you can get into Harvard if you know this without your parents' help, okay? <laughs> Palm Sunday, Fig Monday. Why is it called Fig Monday? That's the day Jesus cursed the fig tree. Temple Tuesday, Jesus taught in the temple. Spy Wednesday, that's when Judas betrays Jesus, and somehow it's called Spy Wednesday. Monday, Thursday. And I, when I was young, I thought, was it Monday or is it Thursday? But but uh, there, oh, there, there was, a, in Latin, the word for commandment is mandatum, and a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. So that's why it's called Monday, Thursday, Holy Saturday, a great day for fasting and reflection, and then Easter Sunday. Did I get all of the days? Oh, I forgot. Good Friday. Is that not bizarre to call the day good the, the Son of God on a cross, naked, suffering, bleeding, dying, and we call it good? Why do we call it good? Well, let's find out. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word, John chapter 19. We're going to start 
at the, in the middle of verse 16. Here's what John writes. And, and you know my habit. I'm going to ask you just to, just to hear God's word, but keep your Bible open. We're going to sit down and look at it, but just listen to it the first time through. Here's what John says. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to a place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription. It said, Jesus of, and he put it on the cross, it said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place he was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews. But rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his garments into four parts, one part for each soldier. Also his tunic. But his tunic was seamless, woven together from top to bottom. So the soldiers said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, Mary, and Mary Magdalene, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. There was a jar filled with, with sour wine standing there. So they put a sponge filled with the sour wine on a hyssop branch and raised it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not be left on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that their bodies might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers took a spear and pierced his side, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it bears witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. That you also may believe. That you also may believe. And that you also may believe. 
This was to fulfill the scripture that says, not one of his bones will, will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and wrapped it in linen cloths with the spices. Now in the place where, as is the burial custom of the Jews, now in the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation... Since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, the climax of the passage, which I emphasize by saying it about three or four times, is right in verse 33 if you look at it. And this is the main point of this passage. It's the main point of the Gospel of John, and you might say it's the main point of the whole Bible. It's it's the the sense that we also might believe. John brings us to the cross so that we would believe. Now, we're going to look at this in in three different areas. We're going to look at the control of Jesus, the thirst of Jesus, and then finally the announcement of Jesus. So let's go, go through these one at a time. First of all, the control of Jesus. From start to finish, John wants the reader to know that he is in absolute control. Jesus is in absolute control. He's already told us so. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, for this reason the Father loves me. He says, listen, he says that I lay down my life that I may take it up again. So in John's gospel, Jesus not only gives up his life, he's the one who raises himself. He is in control. Make no mistake, church, this is not the dead end for an itinerant rabbi whose luck has run out. The cross is not the moment where the Romans outwitted Jesus or the Jews outwitted Jesus and and they finally captured him and and they stuck him up there to, to suffer and die. Not at all. John shows us again and again that Jesus is in control, Good Friday included. Now, the first thing we notice when we read the Gospel of John, if if you took a long afternoon today and read Matthew and then Mark and then Luke and then read John, you would say, boy, is this different. So let me tell you about a party I went to last night, okay? Here in Carmel, you have parties here. Did you know that? I went to this party. It was absolutely amazing. It was one of these really big houses down by the beach. I think it's worth about 180,000 bucks for the house. And and, uh, and, oh my goodness, the truffles were flown in yesterday from France along with the cheese. Never had anything like it. That's just the appetizer. And they brought in wine from Santa Barbara County because there was nothing in Monterey County that was good enough. and, and it, was tr- it was great. And then for, for the main course, we had uh, three different entrees. There was a vegetarian dish that was brightly colored. And, and being a man, I didn't even taste it, but it sure looked good. <laughs> and then they had turnados of beef. And these cows were, not only were they grain-fed cows, they were hand-fed cows. 
and the, the cows had been in the jacuzzi every single day of their lives. It was just amazing. And on the beef was this great Bernays sauce with artichokes and uh, wonderful. And if you didn't like that, they had halibut that was flown uh, from the Atlantic, uh, and it was just it was wonderful. And I won't even begin to tell you about the dessert, because we've got to get back to God's Word. All right, let me tell you about the party I went to last night, okay? It was down here in Carmel, on the beach, in this house, and really a good party. And this guy drives up in a truck, and he gets out, and lo and behold, he's got cowboy boots on. It is Clint Eastwood, and George Bush is with him. And they're talking in Texan accents. And Magic Johnson showed up and told us why he quit the Lakers this week. Uh, Donald Trump came by for a few minutes, and we didn't pay much attention to that. And there was, I was most intrigued. The company was fascinating. I was most intrigued with this theoretical physicist from Berkeley who was explaining to us that picture that was taken this week of the black hole. Did you see that? He was telling us all about it, and I didn't do well in algebra, so you can imagine how much I understood of that. Okay, church. I have just told you, I made it all up, by the way, it's, it's, it's fictitious, but I've just told you two versions of a story that could be perfectly complementary. It would be possible, okay? One emphasized the food, one emphasized the company. The gospel writers are like that, and when they portray Jesus on the cross, they show the story from different sides. Here's your challenge this week. Take your Gospels and read through each passion narrative in the Gospels and, and see how different they are. Matthew shows Jesus' death as a violent, bloody death that leads to his supernatural vindication. The Gospel of Mark shows the dark suffering of a servant, a servant who ransoms the world. The Gospel of Luke shows the, the loving surrender of the Son of God. But John... John shows the majestic king. The cross is the hour of the glory of Jesus. Jesus is in control throughout. In the first three Gospels, somebody has to go find a donkey for Jesus. Not in John. He finds his own donkey. And people help him get up onto the donkey. Not in John. He gets on it himself. Jesus begins his own arrest by he himself sends Judas out to betray him. He's in control. At the end of Mark 14, Jesus says to his disciples, let's get out of here. They're in the upper room. He wants to go be arrested. And when the Romans come to arrest him, Jesus makes the first step forward. He says, whom do you seek? And they say, well, we're looking for Jesus. He says, I am he. And they all fall over backwards. He's the king. Jesus makes provision for his disciples that they would flee. He does that only in John's gospel. Even when he's buried, by the way, you don't read this anywhere else. When the Romans buried, excuse me, when the Jews buried one of their own, they put just a pinch of myrrh and aloes in the burial. Just a pinch. What happens in John? This is a burial fit for a king. He is in control. His arrest, his trial, his crucifixion. By the way, you read John, you read about Pilate, you almost feel sorry for Because so much is the authority of Jesus. As Scotty Smith says in his notes on John's gospel, he says, uh, this is the climax of all human history. Jesus is not only the main character of this glorious drama, he is the writer, the director, and the producer. He is doing it all. Now, what's intriguing is how much John leaves out. 
When Jesus takes his cross, he doesn't need Simon of Cyrene to help him carry it. When Jesus in the, the, goes to the cross, he goes under his own power, but in the Synoptic Gospels, he has to be led there. In Luke's Gospel, as he goes, the women weep and wail. Not in John. In the other Gospels, Jesus is mocked by almost everybody, by the Jews, by the Romans, even by the other criminals on the cross. In John, it is Pilate who mocks the accusers of Jesus by placing this sign on the cross, the king of the Jews. Jesus is there. He's dying for the sins of the world. Remember this? A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how many times John uses that word world in his gospel, 61 times. And just so we don't miss the point, the sign we learn only in John's gospel is written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. By the way, if you're here this morning and you think, yeah, that's kind of an interesting story, it's for other people, I want you to know the sign was written in your language. The cross is for everyone who will eventually come to Christ in faith. In the other Gospels, when Jesus dies, there is darkness that hovers over the land. Not in John. Why not? This is the light of the world. He's told us so in John 8. There's no need for darkness. Here's the bright, shining light. And if you look at verse 30, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That word to bow your head is, is the word for laying down your head and going to sleep. Why is it there? Why is this there? Well, it's finished. You remember what we saw a couple of weeks ago? When I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. He's done. He's completed this. Number two, the thirst of Jesus. Only in John's gospel does Jesus say, I thirst. And he's offered sour wine to quench his thirst. This is not the sedative that's offered to him in Mark's gospel. Now watch this. It's so important. When Jesus says, I'm thirsty, he's doing so to tell us that we don't have to be thirsty anymore. So over here, there's a stained glass of the woman of Samaria. That's the woman in the well. That story comes from, in the middle panel, up high on the right, that story comes from John 4, where Jesus goes through Samaria, and he meets a woman. She's out at Jacob's well, high noon. She's, she's kind of a shameful woman, and Jesus approaches her and honors her, and, and he says, you know, if you drink this water, you'll be thirsty again by dinner time. But if you drink the water that I offer you, you'll never be thirsty again. Do you remember John 7? It's the Feast of Tabernacles, a, a harvest feast in the fall. It must have been really fun. They ate and drank so much that they, by the time of Jesus, instead of being a seven-day feast, they had to add an eighth day. I guess they had to rest up before they went back to work. And John tells us that at the last and the great day of the feast... Jesus stands up, people have been eating and drinking all week, and he says, hey, is anybody st here still thirsty? I mean, isn't it at the end of the party you realize you're still thirsty? You, you st when you get that degree, you, you want something? If you're still thirsty, he says, come to me and drink. And then he quotes, he paraphrases the Old Testament, and he says, out of his heart will 
flow rivers of living water. So for Jesus to offer us water, he himself has to become thirsty. Now look at verse 29. There's a detail that that you might want to circle or at least note in your mind. He's thirsty. They fill a sponge full of sour wine and they offer it to him on a what? On a hyssop branch. Okay. Let me digress for a moment. If there is a heresy in the American evangelical church, I think it is this. It's very subtle. The heresy is that we have come to believe God is our buddy. That everybody lives in Lake Wobegon and all the children are above average and that would be us. Or everybody lives under Mr. Rogers' authority and and you are special. And we think of our sins as but trifles. So I was a soccer referee for some time, a long time ago. And that, you haven't lived until you've had young mothers yelling at you f- for not protecting their son or daughter. It's, it's an amazing experience. But one of the rules, of, one of the, the goals of a, of a referee in soccer is to keep the game going. If you blow your whistle too much, you're going to get assessed and they're, they're going to say, you didn't do a very good job. You want to keep the flow of the game going. So sometimes there is technically an infraction of the laws of the game. They don't have rules in soccer. They have laws. But uh, a lot of vocab, uh, soccer refs, and I was one of them, you use the word trifling. So they're playing, and you know, some player is protesting, what, didn't you see that ref? And I say, trifling. And I, I think a lot of the 15-year-old boys that would raise their voices at me, they didn't know what the word trifling meant, but I felt really good saying it. <laughs> trifling means, ah, I saw it, play soccer, quit being a baby, don't play like those guys on TV, play soccer. Keep the game going. It's just, a, it's just a little infraction. I'm not going to pay attention to it, but I saw it. We think, I think, our sins are but trifling matters, idiosyncrasies, foibles. They're no big deal. But the hyssop branch, what's that about? Let me take you back about 1,400, 1,500 years before the time of Christ. Israel, the Hebrews, have been living in Egypt four centuries, twice the the length of the American experiment, roughly. They've grown numerically to the extent that the Pharaoh is kind of a a little bit nervous about them. And at the same time, God wants to bring a deliverer to get them out, to get them into their own land, the land of Israel. Okay, you remember the story? So to soften up Pharaoh, I mean, this is his labor force. These are the people that are doing all the things he doesn't want to do and his people don't want to do. God sends a series of plagues to Egypt. And we might say during the first nine of those plagues, Egypt has a problem, but the people of Israel do not. Are you with me? They live in the land of Goshen. So when there's darkness over the land of Egypt, they have light. When the gnats go around Egypt, they don't have them. When there's frogs everywhere, they don't have frogs. When the water turns to blood in the Nile River, the Hebrews still have water. So so the first nine plagues are there to soften up Pharaoh, but then there's the 10th plague. 
And everything changes. This is not a problem just for Egypt. This is a problem for everyone because Yahweh, God himself, is going to judge. And he's going to, he says uh, to Moses, he says, this plague will get you out of the land, I promise. But the problem is the plague is for everyone. And the, the plague is that God, as a righteous, just judge, is going to give some of the people in the land what all of us deserves, death. And God is going to come and execute his judgment on every household. So formerly, the Jews had the problem of an earthly despot who was temperamental and you didn't know what he was going to do. Now they're facing another judge, another potentate, and his authority is absolute and he is going to judge, period. He's going to pass through the land and one person in every house is going to die, but there was the possibility of a substitute. If you take a spotless lamb and kill it and don't break any of its bones and put the blood on the doorpost, God says, I will pass over that house. Now mark this and mark it well. In every single house, there will be a dead body universally throughout Egypt. Either the dead body of the firstborn son or the dead body of the lamb, the substitute. Now, let me ask you a question. Uh, how many, well, Israel began to operate, uh, observe this Passover for the next 1,500 years, sacrificing lambs after lambs after lambs. How many of those lambs truly paid the price of sin? What's the answer? Zero. But we open John's gospel, and John the Baptist, another John, sees Jesus from a distance, and he says, look at that. The Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Wow. All those other lambs simply looked forward to that. And when this sponge is placed on a hyssop branch, we are reminded of the Passover and the fact that here and here only can our sins truly be atoned for. The Passover is, Tim Keller put it like this, he said, it is the, the true moment of spiritual egalitarianism, where everyone stands at, at, at a, the level footing of the cross in need of real forgiveness, no matter how religious or how corrupt we have become. Not one of his bones will be broken. Comes right out of Exodus. What a gift. What is going on on Golgotha is this. God's love and his justice are meeting. His mercy and his wrath are kissing one another. His grace and his righteousness come together. God does not suspend his love to save us. He, fulfill, he does not suspend his law to save us. He fulfills his law by pouring out his wrath on his son. That's why we call it Good Friday. Because of the benefits that we receive. Third, just a few minutes on this. The announcement of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus dies with a loud cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in John, this is the king. And the king says, it is finished. 
You know what that sounds like in Greek? A tissue, a little bit of Greek. This is all I know. Te telestai. Can you say te telestai? What do you think te telestai means? It is finished. I have a friend who has in Greek font te telestai tattooed right here. I thought, what a good tattoo. I, I'm not going to get one, but uh, you know. <laughs> it is finished. And when Jesus says it is finished, he means we don't have to finish anything. He finished everything for us. His work of redemption is completed. Now, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each one of them, there is a Roman centurion that sees the crucifixion and says, truly, truly, this was the Son of God. That's the climax of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's not in John. What does John give us that's different? Right in the middle of the story, he says, I was there. I saw it. I'm telling you the truth that you also may believe. In other words, can you say what the Roman centurion said? That this was the Son of God? Can you agree with Jesus that truly it is finished? Okay, the cross is the focal point of all Scripture, the focal point of all history. When Jesus says it is finished... There could be no more profound statement uttered ever. Now, I just told you, Lisa and I are going to go to the East Coast for a couple of months. I just bought a book this week. It's about 600 pages. It's on the crucifixion by a woman named Fleming Rutledge. It's called The Crucifixion. And I'll read that, and I'll enjoy it, and it's going to be academic, and I have a lot of footnotes and so on. But if that's all I did, it wouldn't be finished. The cry, it is finished, is only good for you when you become finished with yourself. When you become finished with your self-effort. When you get over yourself and submit to this one who's in complete control. So, June 1972, in Vietnam, a pilot named John Plummer flew over a village in South Vietnam and dropped napalm on the village. He flew back to the, uh, the base and went to his barracks and felt like he'd done a good job that day. The next day he woke up and he saw the, the American military newspaper, Stars and Stripes. And on the front of that paper, he saw the most iconic picture in the history of the Vietnam War, the little girl, nine-year-old Kim Pook, who had been seared with the napalm. You've seen the picture. And his conscience was pricked. He realized that he had done that. 24 years later, he had gone back to the States. He'd gone through his first marriage. He'd gone through his second marriage. He was married to his third wife. He'd become a hopeless alcoholic. And one day, he's at the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C., and he goes to hear the gal who's called the napalm girl. Kim Pook, 24 years later. And she's speaking to whoever is there on a PA system and there's security involved. And she hears her say, if I could find the pilot who did this to me, I would tell him that I forgive him. Well, John Plummer scrabbles, scratches a note out uh, and gives it to the security guard. And the note said, I am that pilot. 
And a meeting between the two of them is arranged in, in, uh, hasty, in a hasty manner, and they hug one another and weep together, and she says, I forgive you. Now, you're not going to expect me to say this, but isn't there something missing in that story? I mean, this woman has, she's now 36 years old, I think. She's had surgery after surgery. She's born two children. She lives in pain every day. To this day, she lives in pain every day. How can she simply say, I forgive you? And that's the end of it. Doesn't he and doesn't she need a greater true forgiveness? Well, the part I didn't tell you is that in the intervening years, both John Plummer and Kim Pook had both given their lives to this one, the one who finished everything. So when they met, they met as people who stand at the foot of the cross on level ground and received the cry of Jesus, it is finished. It is their cry. What a gift. I've written these things, John says. I was there. I saw it so that you also may believe. Can you say it with me again? Te telestai. Say it. Te telestai. So, Father in heaven, we want to ponder this week what went on at Golgotha. We ask that you would move from us the fog of our indifference to the things that are truly important. We ask that you'd let the reality of heaven and hell pierce our hearts. Lord, give us the gift of tears over our own sins. We ask that you would break the pride that tells us that we are better than our neighbor, that our sins are but a trifle. And Lord, when you do these things, we ask that you would do much more. We ask that you would let us ponder the one who was pierced for our transgressions. Let us see the glory of Christ and the sufficiency of his provision. And let us relish these words, te telestai, it is finished. Lord, I want to pray for any in this room who have yet to bow their knee to you. I want to ask that you would warm those men and women's hearts, that they would see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that they would come to you in faith and embrace you, our rock and our redeemer. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and for his glory. And God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.